Good morning, listeners. This is Alan Karbelnik continuing my uh, set of 10 podcasts introducing you to the basics of psychoanalytic or psychodynamic psychotherapy, um, really an outgrowth of psychoanalysis. Uh, I introduced myself a couple of podcasts ago, uh, lectures, I guess I would rather call these, and now um, I began one of 10 lectures focusing specifically on how depth psychotherapy works, and this is intended for beginning psychotherapists in any field, or those of you who might be interested in uh, getting into psychoanalytic psychotherapy yourself, so you can get a sense of what it's like and what it will be like for you. Uh, so today I focus on framing. In the last lecture, I introduced what I believe are the three elements that um, uh, coalesce all the various psychoanalytic theories, which oddly enough are sort of like um, religion in that uh, many ways to view God, but then you have these uh, different religions that approach it from different angles. I also introduced the idea of perspectivism uh, in the last lecture, which is that, briefly put, the world is so unbelievably complicated, we don't have barely a clue about what we call reality. And so we break it in, into perspectives or viewpoints to render it more uh, manageable to all of us. And the same thing has happened in the history of psychoanalysis. It began with Sigmund Freud, who first coined the term psychoanalysis in 1897 and has gone through many, many iterations uh, in our current day. Uh, the three contemporary psychoanalytic viewpoints are self-psychology, uh, intersubjective psychoanalysis, and relational psychoanalysis, but there are still, in various parts of the world, people practicing traditional Kleinian analysis or maybe somewhere in a dark corner of Manhattan, there is a 85-year-old white male analyst practicing uh, traditional Freudian analysis. But in any event, and circling back a bit here, whether you're Jungian or Freudian or Kleinian or self-psychologist, there's three basic ways you manage the psychoanalytic uh, process, and that is you create a frame around the professional relationship you bring your presence, which is basically your attention, care, uh, interest, curiosity, even love, to the patient. And uh, thirdly, is you engage the patient in a variety of ways uh, so as to break up destructive internal dramas uh, that are running their lives, to edit the fiction that they believe is their lives. and. Um, related themes, and I'll get into all that much more when I talk about engagement. Today, my intention is to focus on the first of those three concepts, namely framing. Now, framing, a uh, commonly used word, is basically the same as boundaries or something uh, uh, Carl Jung would have used, uh, the, uh, uh, the Swiss psychoanalyst and early friend and colleague of Sigmund Freud, as I like to say, they, they stayed together about as long as the Beatles, uh, and then they've had a terrible breakup, 
I'm looking right over at my collected letters between Jung and Freud, and it's quite a good read. It's like watching a bromance uh, fall apart. But uh, Jung would have called it the crucible and would use uh, alchemy as um, an analogy, uh, the idea of turning other objects into gold uh, back way back in the pre-day day. Uh, but when it comes to uh, psychoanalytic psychotherapy, it's really about creating this container, uh, which is a word Wilfred Bion would have used. But let's just make it more between you and me, okay? You are creating a transformational encounter, a set of transformational encounters. <clears throat> Pardon me. It's really a rather absurd relationship. And I will be getting into that in this specific uh, lecture around what makes it absurd uh, in that you are creating a structure, if you will, that has friendliness to it, but it's not the same as friendship uh, because it is, as the relational psychoanalyst Lewis Aaron would have put it, an asymmetrical relationship, a relationship that is intimate, but uh, in an asymmetrical way. And so for the early practitioner or for the person interested in venturing into the realm of patient, uh, what does that mean? What does this container look like? So first of all, on kind of the most plebeian level, it's about creating a, uh, a bounded space. <clears throat> so what does that mean? Um, so typically, uh, psychoanalytic psychotherapy sessions last 45 or 50 minutes. There's a beginning and ending to them, and they may occur between one and four times a week. Uh, just starting a couple of years ago, I no longer provide these sessions every other week uh, because there is a way that... Um, depth psychotherapy, and you may remember I use that interchangeably with uh, psychoanalytic psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, uh, uh, depth psychotherapy, psychodynamic psychotherapy. <clears throat> uh, focus is sort of like a psychoorthodontia, and that is a word, one of the few words I can take a little personal credit for, in that you are applying pressure on unconscious or slightly out of conscious themes that that virtually everyone uh, myself included are highly resistant to change and you have to have at least once a week to exert enough pressure to alter these habitual psychological cognitive emotional behavioral patterns um, and so you meet with the patient the first time after usually an email or telephone exchange, which ideally is kept fairly brief because you don't want to contaminate the purity of this field. And I'll also be getting into that in a minute. Um, you meet with the person, you get a sense of what their difficulties are, and they are widely ranging from anxiety and depression uh, that's a very common uh, human experience to severe anxiety and depression to psychotic disorders to uh, back to just regular life difficulties 
uh, uh, um, boredom of the job, boredom of the marriage, uh, loneliness because there is no stable relationship, pressure caused by children being added to a marital relationship, pressure caused by children leaving the relationship, homosexual relationships, polyamorous relationships. There's any number of reasons that bring patients to psychotherapy, uh, depth psychotherapy, and in that first session or two is when you open your heart, you as the analyst, and you open your ears and just take in what the patient has to say within this framework. Um, returning to the frame now, um, all the, the four or five licensed uh, licenses that exist in the state of California, they all require you to get a written informed consent. So sometime during the first or second session, it's important to explain depth psychotherapy to patients uh, and then have them sign a form indicating that they're giving their consent to participate in it. And that form includes uh, other alternative ways of, of achieving uh, somewhat similar growth like meditation or cognitive behavioral therapy approaches, <clears throat> uh, exercise, etc. And um, it's a very complex process, which is why it's going to take me 10 sessions just to explain the basics of it. Um, but it, it can be summarized in a sentence or two. And I will get to that, I promise, before I get to the end. By the way, side point, one of the critiques I hear about my lecturing is that I'll, I'll often say, well, I'll get to that, I'll get to that, and then I never get to that. But I will get to everything I promised you today. So let's go back to the boundaries. First session, you're listening to what the patient presents with, uh, and then uh, you get obtain their informed consent uh, another side point here, uh, the most ethics codes really want you to get that consent by the first session. In my view, if somebody comes in and bursts into tears, they just discovered their wife having an affair, they just discovered their best friend has a terminal cancer diagnosis, <clears throat> it's foolish uh, and harmful to uh, uh, stop the session 10 minutes early and say, well, let's go through these forms now. What I will typically do is say, um, uh, at the end, you know, our time's up for today. I can tell you're terribly upset about whatever it was. Uh, uh, I just want to give you a heads up that next time I am going to have to go through these forms with you that I typically have sitting out on my ottoman in the first appointment, but I do not have them go through it the first time or uh, some more sophisticated patients and all the younger ones will fill out all the forms online and then bring them in and hand them to me. I still am ethically required as all licensed mental health professionals are to do a verbal as well as a written informed consent. Um, so now back to the boundaries. Part of that informed consent is these are about how long these appointments are going to last and uh, uh, unless they request more than once a week, I almost always begin with once a week and see where the process unfolds. Um, now, why are these boundaries important and how does it make it an absurd relationship? Um, 
One common, ver common variant of bad therapy is where it basically becomes rent-a-friend. And I would estimate, uh, I'm not in that cynical of a mood today, that maybe 50% of all therapies are rent-a-friend. And that's just two people sitting together hanging out like they're in a coffee shop. That is not effective psychotherapy of any type. So you, you want to create this asymmetrical intimacy to which you will then bring uh, presence and a whole wide variety of engagements uh, later on. Um, so uh, part of the absurdity of the relationship is you, you kind of create early on, uh, this is going to be a one-way, uh, a mostly one-way exchange. I'll be doing very little, if any, self-disclosure. Um, we're here to really talk about uh, what's happening um, in your life, and then we're going to follow this trend. In fact, I haven't done this for some years now, but I'm reminded of my standard rap introducing patients to analytic psychotherapy, and it goes like this. I'll tell them, so uh, this type of psychotherapy works in three basic ways. First, you come in and tell me whatever's on your mind, and we follow wherever your mind leads you. And that's, that's usually going to land us in uh, three basic realms. How you're relating to friends, family, uh, colleagues in your life right now. How that connects to uh, early childhood relationships, relationship with your mother, father, siblings, uncles, aunts, etc. Maybe some early childhood friend figures, and thirdly, how you relate to me. And typically, we'll see patterns emerge across those three realms, sometimes painful, sometimes joyful. One typical pattern might be that you uh, tend to be rather self-critical. You tell me about how your friends, you perceive them as being critical of you. And at some point, you, you tell me that you believe that I'm being critical of you. And uh, uh, pulling those themes together basically increases your awareness of them. We talk about whether or not I'm being critical of you in the here and now. And that begins to shift these deep unconscious patterns that, as I've already mentioned, I prefer to think about in terms of an internal drama that then gets, that then gets mapped onto the external interpersonal world. Uh, so that sir or madam next is explanation number one and then i'll ask if they understand that <clears throat> almost always they do and then i go well, here comes explanation number two which is actually my favorite because it's the most eloquent and simple and that's just that human beings are by their very nature self-deceptive so we all lie about ourselves to ourselves we lie about the fact that in 30 40 50 years we'll be dead we lie about the way we allow ourselves to be abused by others or we're abusing others. We lie about the degree to which we're abusing alcohol or substances, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of what competent depth psychotherapy is about is just uh, uncovering your own self-deception. And for that reason, I'll be saying very little about myself. That may alter a bit as we go along. And instead, I focus on we focus together as a partnership on ways you are being self-deceptive. So kind of a dumb, overused example 
is that let's say you're talking about your relationship with your father and I notice that your fists are tightly clenched and I point out to you, ah, have you noticed your fists are very tight right now? I wonder what that might mean. And then together we would follow that path and exploration. And my not talking about myself, by the way, is not in any way to be depriving or, or mean. Uh, it's really just to do this work in a competent way, which is about facilitating some kind of personal transformation in you, helping you be all that you can be. Uh, and then I ask the patient, do you understand that? And they almost always do. And then I say the third uh, explanation is, is kind of almost borders on the mysterious. The first two I could explain simply in terms of, say, education, learning. Depth psychotherapy is kind of like a intensive personal tutorial. <clears throat> Pardon me. I need a little more tea this morning. The third is a bit more um, mysterious in terms of I can't quite explain it. Uh, I might be able to find a, a behavioral uh, explanation, but it's, it's deeper and more mysterious than that. And that, that is simply this, that as we wander along together, we may uncover some very deep emotional experiences that haven't really been resolved in you. So let's say your father died when you were 13, or let's say uh, you have memories of being fourth or fifth grade and witnessing uh, domestic violence occurring between your parents. And as we um, make our way down into these depths, uh, maybe you'll access uh, uh, deep emotional emotions around these memories. So. It may be weeping, it may be rage, maybe feelings of loss. <clears throat> and typically not intending to do any kind of weird technical or methodological thing. But my typical mode in those moments would be to be quiet and to bring uh, that idea of presence fully to you and let you experience, re-experience these uh, unresolved feelings. And here another type of transformation happens that's different than explanations one and two. Uh, I don't like medical analogies for the most part because depth psychotherapy is rather different than traditional medicine. Side point, in medicine the physician has a huge database and you are you're wanting to access it. You go in and say I have a sore throat what might this mean? You know a lot about sore throats, I don't. What's so different about depth psychotherapy, and this goes back to the idea of where you're really trying to build the agency in the patient all the time, and that's one of the things that makes it different than cognitive behavioral therapy, is that um, you're going to uh, always be following their experience And when that experience hits um, these, this type of painful emotional experiences, you are able to, um, oh uh, yeah, I was gonna talk about why I don't like medical analogies. Well, here comes one. Uh, you are able, it's think of it as like a surgical scar revision where a plastic surgeon will go in and take a jagged uh, scar from a knife wound and cut it open and then uh, take out the infection 
and then revise the scar, make it thin. You don't make it go away. I used to think you could make it go away, but I no longer believe that. I gave that up literally decades ago. Um, so this third way that therapy works is people can re-experience and resolve, say, grief over the death of their father, uh, uh, fury and uh, terror over the domestic violence they witnessed uh, by having uh, what Franz Alexander called a corrective emotional experience. So that's the third way this process works. This, uh, listeners, is how I generally do uh, my informed consent, by the way. That is my little three to five minute wrap on how depth psychotherapy works. And I ask them uh, if they understand it and we proceed from there. Uh, I wanna return now to the idea of framing. So I've created this structure. You've, you've hopefully set up a regular appointment time or two in the first session. And then uh, uh, you begin the work. Uh, now Sigmund Freud had this idea of this fundamental rule, which was you, you actually tell the patient, I want you to tell me whatever comes to your mind and don't censor yourself. Uh, I rarely, if ever, deliver that rule anymore. In a way, it's still based on that on that general idea of following wherever the patient might go. I find it unnecessary to speak it anymore. And because I tend to be kind of a friendly person, I see nothing wrong with greeting a patient warmly in the waiting room and saying, come in. A very conservative analyst would not do that. They'd be much more, uh, they'd use uh, what's called abstinence and neutrality. Abstinence meaning you're not there to have any of your needs met, the analyst that is, and neutrality meaning you just want to be very neutral to what their experience is. And a quick side point on that one, for example, a patient gets married between sessions or gets their PhD, it is in fact bad form to open the waiting room door and say congratulations, because you don't know if that might actually be a horrible experience for them. For all you know, um, they're, they made the wrong decision in their marriage or after getting their PhD, they're now feeling terribly uh, frightened. Uh, they've never actually lived a working life and what are they going to do now? Um, so you definitely want to minimize your uh, any contamination of the uh, psychoanalytic field, if you will. But I am not of the opinion that you uh, apply this abstinence and neutrality to excess because basically, as a guy named uh, Sandor Ferenzi pointed out way back in the 1930s, uh, that can be re-injurious to the patient. So a little bit of banter, a little bit of hey uh, is not really a problem. I rarely ask patients, how are you when they walk in because they're going to tell me how they are. But And this is all part of the absurdity because you start to create this kind of strange warm but relationship but not really a friendly one because there's work to be done and the work is all about the patient looking at themselves with you facilitating this complex transformational process. Um, now, um, but going back to the fundamental rule, you chase what, fun, what comes up. Uh, one of my many heroes, Wilfred Bion, says you, you should begin every session free of memory and desire. What he means by that is whatever happened last session, whatever uh, 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 happened to you this morning, 
Uh, all of that is irrelevant. You want to just receive them in a fresh way. Uh, uh, a little bit of a gross analogy here, but it is another one of my own. When you go in and have one of those urine tests where they ask you to uh, wipe off your genital area uh, right after you release a little bit of urine, the idea is to get the bacteria out uh, so they can have more of a pure sample of the urine. And in like manner, you want to uh, avoid anything like, um, uh, hey, how did that interview with uh, Microsoft go? And, and really, despite whatever kind of initial banter there is, let the patient just go from there so as to begin to learn to track your own experience carefully without external influence or um, uh, disruption. Um, so you're focusing on what comes up. You start to pay attention to uh, defenses that may come up. And I'll be talking about defenses as, a, as an entire lecture here. Um, making a note to myself about that. Um, so, uh, but how might you see some defenses in framing? Uh, well, uh, some among the more obvious ones are patients that come very early every week, like five or 10 minutes early. Is that about uh, trying to be the good boy or the good girl? Is it an eagerness to come in? Maybe that could be one of the indicators that might make you suggest uh, increased frequency, like sessions uh, once or twice a week. Um, uh, 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 kind of the opposite of that phenomenon, you'll have patients that begin to be regularly late, five minutes, 10 minutes, then uh, uh, the, any competent depth psychotherapist is going to bring up to the patient, huh, I wonder, I've noticed lately you were so good about being on time uh, the first 10 visits or so, and now it's, you've been late. The, does it co anything come to your mind about what that might mean? Uh, you always want to say that in a highly non-judgmental, non-shaming way because it means something. And the frame, the container, this is all ways that allows you to access really the ultimate gold standard, which is an understanding of what drives this particular patient, what, what comprises their internal drama, are there highly self-critical, highly self-grandiose internal uh, voices, internal others in their mind? Is there a, a, a defeated sense of self, a, um, a, a chronically wounded sense of self, a stuck in mourning sense of self? You want to tease out all the characters. And every uh, psychoanalytic psychotherapy is unique. Uh, and so much of it depends on the psychotherapist. Like our personalities play immensely, even if we are trying to stay out of the uh, field. Um, there's just no way to avoid that. So uh, as I come toward the end of this lecture, I want to touch on a few other framing uh, phenomenon. Sometimes patients will begin to develop strong feelings of love for you, even erotic love. Uh, sadly, that hasn't happened to me that many times. Um, Freud thought that was purely a defense. I don't think that's true. He would have said, well, that, that's not what you're here for, to have a love experience. It's, it's a little bit true in the sense that um, uh, what is the meaning of the erotic feelings? It, it could represent a infantile kind of yearning. It could be a way of avoiding deeper work. 
uh, completely contrasting that, another common framing phenomenon is hatred develops. They, uh, patients develop an intense dislike of you, become highly critical. Uh, always important to think about maybe uh, you deserve it, or maybe it's just not a good fit, or maybe you're not behaving in the best possible way with this patient. Or it could be an enactment of some type or some kind of uh, anger uh, they feel toward someone else in their life. Um, this leads me kind of a side point here to session frequency. Uh, in my view, once a week is plenty uh, unless they either want to move more quickly or there's a tremendous amount of distress that needs containment. A patient that's calling me a lot between sessions or reports just great distress, I will often uh, recommend, and usually there's a fee lowering that goes along with that, that they come in twice a week or three times a week. That's usually a very easy kind of transition because they are feeling the need themselves. Um, other issues regarding framing is inviting in other parties. That is something you would rarely do. I, I think I will highlight that in a different uh, lecture. But what I mean by that is someone says, yeah, I'd like you to meet my husband and my wife. Or I'd like you to have a session with my son. Generally, that would be considered a contamination of the frame. Uh, once you begin with an individual, that's going to be your therapy. Maybe 20 years later, you would see their spouse or their child. <clears throat> but for the foreseeable future, it needs to be an uncontaminated framed field. And now drawing the uh, lecture to a conclusion. I, I hope and trust I gave you a basic idea of what the frame or container of this transformational process is. Interesting to think about that it exists um, at, during each session and then it exists over the course of a year or five years of sessions. If you don't have a frame, you don't have therapy. And that reminds me of something I was going to mention earlier. Um, you, if you run into patients uh, on the street in a restaurant, my common advice to uh, therapists uh, that I supervise is you don't, you don't initiate contact, but if they come up to you, you just have a friendly engagement and it becomes grist for the mill when you meet. Again, you certainly do not sit down and have coffee with them. You do not go to a movie with them. This is all part of creating the transformational frame um, uh, just a funny story, I think, is I have a cherished colleague. Her name is Moxa Ott, O-T-T, who I, I think is one of the best psychotherapists I've, I've ever met. And I have often teased her over the years, Moxa, can we just suspend our friendship? I want to go into therapy with you and be your patient for, let's say, a year. And just for a year, we, we won't be friends. And she always says no, which I know she should, and I admire her for doing that, and I'm uh, rarely not being serious when I bring this up to her, because she is, oh, just top, top in our field. Um, because if you will, our, uh, I can't be your patient because our relationship has already been so contaminated by our years of friendship. Um, so um, there is a way, and the story of Mox is kind of a good lead in, that doing psychoanalytic psychotherapy is painful to both parties uh, the psychoanalyst, when ending the session every appointment, is um, basically saying, uh, get out. This meeting's over. Get out of here. Now, of course, they're not saying it with that kind of uh, ire or even negative feeling, but I think you get the point. And 
that is also a bit of a preview to termination processes. That means just bringing a whole course of therapy to an end, um, uh, which is a whole other story, and I will be giving a, a separate lecture on that. Um, but um, someone said about everything in life, that uh, every friendship, every relationship, that it's, it's the long farewell. I don't want to end on that dark note. But it's definitely true in psychodynamic psychotherapy because the relationship is going to end except for the rare cases of like schizophrenia or severe personality disorder that it might go on for 20 or 30 years. But those are more rare uh, types of depth psychotherapies. Uh, and part of the container is that it's also going to have an end to the session and to the entire transformational process. So that's all I have to say, at least for today, about framing. Uh, Thank you so much for your interest, and I look forward to speaking with you again in the future.